If you would go ahead and stand with me, and we're going to read our scripture for this morning. Turn to uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews. I'm going to be reading the first 22 verses. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their accommodation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, through he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever draw near to God must believe that he exists and to rewards those that seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God, concerned events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became heir to the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land promise, as in the foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him as the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which the land had gone, they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, for a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was an act of offering his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each one of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Maybe seated. Good morning. It's a rainy day outside, praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord, it's a rainy day. I know we, it's, it's been a long while since we've seen some rain, and we praise the Lord for that. A uh, little, little wet coming in this morning, but praise the Lord, we're here. We've arrived, we've made it, and we have opportunity again to uh, worship the Lord. And uh, pray that the, the passage this morning is, is going to be helpful, it's going to be encouraging to you as we continue this theme of by faith. We're going to see it pop up again several times in verses 8 through 22 this morning. So before we jump in... I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer, and we'll uh, look forward to what the Lord has to teach us this morning from His Word. God, we're once again here to meet with you, 
And we come in prayer recognizing that you are a God who hears our prayer. You are a God who works mightily in our lives. You're a God who watches over the way of the righteous. You're a God who sustains all things in this world around us. And Father, this morning I pray that you would grant us understanding of the path that we're on in these days. Your word in in the Psalm 1 verse 6 says that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And it also says that the way of the wicked shall perish. And each of these ways lead to an end. And by faith, Lord, I pray that we will recognize faith's trajectory. I pray that each one here embraces the path of faith whose object is Christ, the Son of God, whose source of guidance and direction is found in God's word of truth and whose power flows from the Spirit abiding within us. Our days are leading us in a certain direction and the decisions that we make each day are moving us somewhere, whether further along the way of the righteous or down the trail of the wicked. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us all to number our days or right, cause us to think eternally, to set our mind at all times on things above. Until you call us homeward, Lord, I pray that you would see to it that we live here and now by faith and not by sight. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to give you three examples up front this morning. Three examples that are going to uh, tie into the course of the text this morning. The first example comes uh, a few weeks back. I had uh, the boys uh, were part of a, uh, just a two-day golf camp experience. And it was something that my brother, who's, who's a very good golfer, uh, he uh, offered to give the boys a couple lessons. And so on this one day... Of, of lessons, I remember standing at the back of, uh, of a par three. For those of you that don't know golf, par three is a shorter hole. It's usually, it's, it's supposed to be uh, that you tee off and hit it on the green on a par three. It's that short. We don't always hit it on the green on our first shot on a par three, but that's the idea. And so I'm standing behind the green, and I'm actually watching my youngest son. And at the time, my youngest son is teeing off. And I'm watching, and he takes his backswing, and he hits the ball... And I see the ball immediately after it gets hit. I see it in flight. And I'm watching it in flight. And in my periphery, I'm seeing the green, which I'm standing behind. I see the ball coming. I'm watching the trajectory. I'm watching the green. And I'm seeing, wow, this is looking pretty good. And sure enough, it landed where it's supposed to land, on the green. I was watching the flight of the ball, the the trajectory of the ball. And I was able to see the green, the ball in flight... And actually see it land on its destination. I followed its path all the way to the end. You know, some of you may also have been watching some of the Olympics of late. And some of you may have seen, I just caught a glimpse uh, this past week of an event that's sort of an odd event. Um, I I think they call it, there may be another technical name for it, but I think they call it skeet shooting. That's the term I know. Where where there's these these guys and some of the ladies, they, they have their rifles, their guns, and and there are clay pigeons that get set off. That's what they, the clay pigeons. Somebody lets off a clay pigeon, this thing flies in the air at an angle, and the idea, the goal, is that you as the participant have to have your gun ready to shoot and fire and aim in such a way that you hit the clay pigeon, break it in half. That's the idea. 
Well, in order to do that, the person who's, who's got the gun in hand has to have his gun set at a certain trajectory because the clay pigeon that's coming out is coming out at an angle. It's coming out at a certain speed. They're, they're probably also uh, having to keep in mind trajectory with if there's any wind going on around them. And so they fire away, and the trajectory may need to move based upon where that particular clay pigeon is flying. I was also thinking about this as another example. I was thinking of, uh, how many of you remember Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart? Remember the name? Yeah. And this great composer, pianist, was said to have perfect pitch. Perfect pitch. He could hear it. He knew what note it was. And just amazing. A perfect pitch. And, and then we ask the question, how did he get this perfect pitch? How did he become such a great musician? Was he, some people just think he was born that way. Well, no. He grew up actually in a home where by the age of four, Mozart was playing the piano extremely well by the age of four. By the age of four. He grew up in a home with a father who was a musician. And his father had all kinds of instruments in the home. He grew up with a father that equipped him in the arena of music. Piano was infused in young Mozart from his toddler days. And I believe the case could be made that the trajectory of his life was leading in a direction whereby Mozart would become very skilled at his craft. You see, three examples of how trajectory plays a role. Whether in the mechanics of a particular sporting event or in the life of an individual. Trajectory is the charted path to a particular destination. It's, it's the charted path to a particular destination. Now the path, listen, this is important. The path is charted not at random, but it's set in motion. And listen, it can be edited on the fly by your daily decisions, which are many. While it is true what the Bible says that man makes his plans, the Lord directs his steps. You've heard that proverb, right? It is also true what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also, what? Reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. Or some translations, destruction. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. There's a familiar proverb, chapter 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. You see the trajectory here of biblical training. There's a certain trajectory of biblical training. And and see, for those of us here, we also see a, a trajectory of those who maybe are not trained, biblically speaking. We see a trajectory of the contrary. When those who are parents who are training their children, there's a certain way they should go. There's a certain trajectory their lives ought to be living. Proverbs 19, 27 says, Cease listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Here's a trajectory of one who closes his ears to instruction. If you are a person who continues to close your ears to instruction, proverb here gives us where it's headed. Here's where it's leaded. You're going to stray from the words of knowledge. You think you got it all figured out. There's another proverb. It says in 13.3, he who guards his mouth, listen to this one. He who guards his mouth preserves his life, 
but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Here's trajectory painted for us. Trajectory of those who do not steward the words that come out of their mouth. See, the Bible is filled with trajectory-oriented passages that show us with great clarity where this leads if we get this particular thing wrong. It also shows us with great clarity the upside of getting these things right. So we see here in the text, in Hebrews 11, speaking of faith, what it looks like for one to walk by faith, to live not according to the old standard of works, but to instead operate by faith alone. To the Hebrew audience, the call to live by faith is followed by a series of examples from the Old Testament, men and women who lived by faith all the way to the finish line. And as we look at Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 22 today, I'd like you to notice the implications of faith-filled living established in the lives of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Okay? Those are the characters. Those are the people. Those are the examples put forward today. Hebrews 11, verse 1, just as a reminder of what we're speaking to. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And the not seen part is what I want to just hold up for just a moment. While faith operates in the unseen, the life of faith puts on display several visible characteristics. Okay? The implications of faith-filled living are evident and obvious to all around you. I'd like to point out five implications of living by faith from this text. Five visible observations gleaned from the passage before us that show the trajectory of faith in real life. Remember, faith's object is Jesus, and a life of faith is lived out with desire to see Jesus one day. I pray and hope that that's what we're about as we live here today, that it's our desire and hope to one day see Jesus, right? Faith object is Jesus. And a life of faith is lived out with the desire to one day see Jesus. And the reward of seeing Jesus is coupled with joining with the saints in that heavenly city that's been described here in Hebrews 11. So the central question we'll be looking at this morning and looking at if faith is intended to be lived out here on earth, and by the way it is, we're called to walk by faith. Remember, that's the call. We're called to walk by faith, not by sight. If faith is intended to be lived out here on earth, and the desired destination is a heavenly city, what kind of life will this lead to then in the present? So to the text. Let's go to the text. The text is going to answer our question. Look with me at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance... And he went out not knowing where he was going. He went out not knowing where he was going. As we look to Abraham, we see that living for a heavenly home will lead to, first of all, obedience. Obedience. Know that some of the things we're talking about in this month of August in Hebrews 11, there's going to be a lot of crossover, a lot of connectivity. Between what we talked about last week, what's talked about this week, what you hear this week is going to connect to the next two weeks, 
There's a lot of connectivity. Why? Because we're talking about faith. All of these messages have to do with faith. That's the theme of, of this chapter. And so obedience. If we're living for a heavenly home in this life, obedience. Obedience is going to be present. If you've got your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 12 with me for just a moment. Genesis chapter 12. And what I'd like to do is just read those first four verses. Because really, if you want to read about Abraham, Genesis 12 is where it begins, and it goes to Genesis 25, his life. I'm just going to read the first four verses. The Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Look at verse 4. So Abram departed. As the Lord had spoken to him. There's obedience right there. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. We see here back in chapter 11 of Hebrews. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out. He went out not knowing where he was going. He went out not knowing where he was going. Listen, the idea, the structure of the sentence is such that Abraham... The text leads us to believe that when God called him to go, he obeyed. In fact, the, the, the rendering of the, the sentence actually has in mind that at first word he heard from God, he's going. He's not, even, he's not even waiting until God's been done giving him the call before he's obeying. It has in mind he's going when he hears God speaking. He's going even though he doesn't know where he's going. But he's going because, well, God's speaking to him. And, and that ought to be sufficient, shouldn't it? If God's speaking, we go. God says go. Abraham goes. Abraham is known in the scriptures as the father of faith. See, to the Jews, Abraham is revered as someone worthy to follow. He's called by God to go. And verse 8 says that he obeyed the call of God. He left, even though he had no idea where he was going. And God tells Abraham in, in Genesis 12 that I will show you where I'm going. I'll show you. Now, there's a lot of us that don't like that idea, that concept, that thought. I want to know where I'm going. I don't want you to know that you know where I'm going and that you're just going to keep it to yourself. A lot of us don't like to operate that way. We like to know all the plans. We want to know all the details. Let me ask you a question. Is your obedience predicated on gaining a complete list of answers to your question? Does your obedience to God hinge upon... What's in this for me? That one might hurt a little bit, truth be told. Abram's life pattern, now now let me remind you, he doesn't always get this right. In fact, we read the Genesis account and we see on a couple of occasions he lied. You remember when he lied? He lied. He lied. He said, hey, uh, Sarah's um, my sister. Remember that? He did it on a couple of occasions. My sister. He doesn't always get this right. But the pattern Abraham gives us is one of obedience to God. When God calls, Abraham is oftentimes seen obeying. Now I want you to think about this. Think about the trajectory of one who makes a habit of obeying God. Think about that trajectory, what that looks like. One whose life is marked by obedience to what God says. A life looking forward to a heavenly city built by God is going to be a life that operates by faith in obedience to this word of truth. 
Are you obeying God when he calls you to go? When he speaks to you through his word... By the way, every time you have opportunity to open the pages of Scripture is an opportunity to eagerly expect God to speak to you. This is his word. And so when he speaks to you through his word, are you adjusting your life to obey? Listen, when God calls you to something, oftentimes it's going to require a life adjustment. It's going to require you to do something that you haven't previously done. When he speaks, are you ready to obey just because it's God speaking? For he who comes to God must believe that he is. We covered that last week. And that he's a rewarder of those who what? Diligently seek him. Have you connected your obedience with pleasing God? Let's not forget that without faith, you cannot please God. You can't. See, faith is exhibited right here in verse 8. When Abraham moves at the sound of God's voice. He moves at the sound of God's voice. Abraham obeys because God is the one speaking. Listen, he believes that the one who calls him is also the one who is able to perform what he promises. It's more important for Abraham to know the God who calls him rather than knowing the destination of his journey. He seems to be most concerned about the God who speaks rather than a detailed explanation of the content. Obedience to God, friends, requires faith. It's aligning yourself with his plan and adjusting your life to his directives as he deems necessary. Obedience to God is not a one-time experience either. Blackaby in his book, Experiencing God, he says that this obedience to God is a daily experience. How you live your life is a testimony of what you believe about God. How you live your life is a testimony about what you believe about God. So, one visible implication of living by faith leads to a pattern of obedience. When God speaks, we respond with obedience. Are you responding to God with obedience? Know this, too, about the trajectory here. The trajectory of obedience and the trajectory of disobedience run on two different tracks. Two different tracks. They take you in opposite directions and they lead to two opposing destinations. Living for a heavenly home requires a trajectory of obedience. Okay? So, if faith is intended to be lived out here on earth, and the desired destination is a heavenly city, what kind of life will this lead to in the present? We see here from verse 8 that it will first of all lead to a life of obedience. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city. He waited for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker 
is God. The second thing I want you to see here is the trajectory of faith leads to a life of inconvenience. The trajectory of faith leads to a life of inconvenience. Now, I realize right away some of you are a bit uncomfortable with this one. Inconvenience. The idea of being inconvenienced for a time might be unsettling to many of you. It's not something that you would likely choose to do, to be inconvenienced. Being inconvenienced moves you out of your settled comfort zone. It causes you to operate differently. Abraham, by faith, dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. Notice he dwelt in tents, which in the day wasn't that big of a deal for us. We think of tents and we think of camping. Right? We think of temporary housing. A tent. But I want you to also understand that Abraham, Isaac, and they were, they were camping, so to speak, in that they were living as in foreign territory. Verse 10 gives the why. I love this. For he waited. He waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He dwelt as though he resided in a foreign land because he was waiting for something better. He was waiting for the heavenly city built by God. Don't miss this. Abraham is willing to be inconvenienced and wait for a time because he knows something better is coming. You know, by and large, we have a waiting problem in this country. Would you agree with that? By and large, people in society around us don't like to wait very long. We like things now. We like it on the spot. We like it in real time. We like fast food. We like fast cars. We like fast internet. We live in a culture that tells us that you can have it your way right now. You see, what Abraham does here is is contrary to the way that our world operates. To consider being inconvenienced is not a pleasant thought, nor is it one that we gravitate towards. Our flesh is very good at convincing us to be comfortable. Our flesh likes to coddle us and comfort us to the nth degree. See, the trajectory of faith has a visible marker of inconvenience. Faith-filled people are willing to wait for that which is better. You know, the theme of our study here this year in Hebrews is anchored to someone better. But see, this idea of waiting, being willing to wait for that which is better, what's that mean in practical terminology? Practical terminology means that the things of this world are not held with a closed fist. Your stuff is really not your stuff. You are a steward of all that God gives for a time. Your car, your home, your gadgets, none of it is anchored to last forever. But waiting for the city which has foundations, a city which will last for all eternity, this, friends, is a city worth investing in. In fact, I'm reminded of what Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures where... On earth, 
where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for your treasures where? In heaven. Where moth and rust do not destroy, thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your what? There your heart will be also. Colossians 3 verse 2 reminds us to set our mind on things above, not on things on the earth So a second visible implication of living by faith is a willingness to live a life of inconvenience. You see, listen, where God has us may be inconvenient for a season, but remember this, it's only for a season. I love these words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. He says, for our light affliction, which if you read the context, it's no light affliction for sure, what he's talking about. But he says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment... But for a moment, our light affliction, our inconvenience, if you want to call it that, our light affliction is but for a moment. It says it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Question perhaps for you to consider here with being inconvenienced. Am I willing to be inconvenienced for a time for the Lord's sake? As we think about the trajectory here, a life of inconvenience for the Lord's sake might seem an uphill climb. It might lead to being uncomfortable. Don't change your course when things get hard. Don't feel like you have to change course because life's going uphill right now. Walking uphill may be hard, but if the Lord is leading, don't be afraid to go there. Remember, Jesus walked a hill and he carried a cross. Aren't you glad he was willing to be inconvenienced and forego being comfortable to take your sin upon himself at the cross? Praise God for that. The text points to a third example of faith. Look at verses 11 and 12. By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age. Because, because, why? How does this happen? Because she judged him faithful. She judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead. Were born as many as the stars of the sky multitude. Innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. When your desired destination is the heavenly city, this will lead to a life of dependence. That's the third thing. Okay? Obedience, inconvenience. Here's the third one. Dependence. The trajectory of one living a life of faith is observable as he depends upon God. That familiar passage, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him. And what's the promise? He's going to direct your steps. You see, Sarah received strength, the Bible says, to conceive a child with Abraham because she judged him faithful who had promised. And you know, the first thing that comes to mind as I think about Sarah is not what I read in Hebrews 11.11. I have to admit that I oftentimes think of Sarah as the one who laughed at God 
for the absurd idea of suggesting that she was going to birth a baby in her 90s. Anybody else ever think about Sarah in that way? That's typically one of the things that comes quickly to mind. And for those of you that know the story, you know how the story ends. You know that God literally gets the last laugh. Right? Genesis 21 verse 1 says that, And the Lord visited Sarah, I love these words, as he had said, and did for Sarah as he had spoken. As he had said, as he had spoken. The Lord did. The Lord came through. You see, this God is dependable. This God in the scriptures is a God that can be trusted. He will always do what he says he'll do. God never fails in this department. God provides the child of promise through Abraham and Sarah and the child's name, Isaac. What's it mean? He laughs. Isn't that interesting? I tend to think God has just a bit of sense of humor here. Sarah receives strength to conceive and she's able to do something that is unheard of. A 90-year-old mom. Think about that for just a moment. But it had everything to do with what she thought about God. Listen, don't miss this. This is so important. She judged God faithful. And it always seems to come back to who God is. These examples, when you read Hebrews 11, you come back to time and time again. The examples here of faith in Hebrews 11, they all have a large view of God. Big, gigantic view of who God is. Sarah and Abraham went through a time where they lived independently of God. See, that's the other side of the coin, isn't it? In Genesis 16, Sarah, who was at the time distraught over God not providing her a child of her own, gives to Abraham her maidservant Hagar. You remember the story? Abram had just been promised in Genesis 15 that he was going to have countless descendants. Abram just had been promised by God this was going to happen. And in Genesis 16 too, after hearing what Sarah's considering to do about having a child through Hagar, the text says in Genesis 16 too, and Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. You see, this same independent thinking got Adam and Eve in trouble in the garden, didn't it? The serpent questions the authority of God, which leads the first couple to act independent of God's word. They listen to someone besides God. And when we act independently of God, the results, friends, are rarely good. Oh, for a time, they might seem pleasurable. Getting what you want, however you deem best appropriate. Living by faith, though has a setting of dependency attached to it, whereby your first recourse is taking it to God in prayer, asking of Him what He wants, opening up your Bible to find out what the will of the Lord is. What would you have us do, God? So a third visible implication of living by faith is dependence upon God. Know this, when God makes a promise, our job is not to question the difficulty level, but depend upon the promise maker. Our job is not to question how hard this is. In fact, 
I love the visitors, the angelic visitors that come in, in 1814. You know, this is the context where Sarah is laughing. But they ask the question. They say, is there anything too hard for the Lord? I ask of you this morning, is there anything too hard for the Lord? You might find yourself in a, in a difficult, hard, painful situation. I would ask the question, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? Am I depending upon God to do what he's promised to do? Or am I handling things as an independent contractor? We think about the trajectory here, a life of dependency upon God. It looks much differently, doesn't it, than, than one who's flying solo, flying by themselves, flying uncharted territory apart from God. For the fourth example, I'd like you to fix your eyes on verses 17 through 19. Don't worry, haven't forgotten 13 through 16. We're going to end there this morning. Okay, 17 through 19. Follow with me. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac... And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. That was the promise given to him. Concluding that God was able, there it is, you can underline that. God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. When your desired destination is the heavenly city, this will lead to assurance. Assurance. The trajectory of One's faith is observable as they live here with an assurance that God has everything under control. When good things happen, God's in control. When bad things happen, God's in control. God doesn't somehow, someway, all of a sudden stop being in control because your life situation isn't what you want it to be. God's still sitting on the throne. Amen? He's still on the throne. Now, as we read this here in 17 through 19, this comes from Genesis 22, the test. Some time has passed in the life of Abraham. Isaac has grown to at least young adulthood. By the time we reach Genesis 22, the one who had brought such great laughter into the home is now the object of God's test. This long-awaited child of promise is now the one Abraham is supposed to offer up on the altar of sacrifice. And to any dad seated here in this place today, this test seems over-the-top difficult. Many, I'm afraid, would opt out of this test. Not my son. After waiting such a long time for him to arrive on the scene, I'm not moving on this one. God, I think you need to check your contact information. I don't think you really mean Isaac. Don't you remember, after all, how long it took for you to bring him on the scene? And God calls to Abraham in Genesis account, and he says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. You see, God knows this. God knows that Abraham has this only son. God knows that he has this son whom he loves. God knows. He says, take that son of yours and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. You see, Abraham had been accustomed to offering animal sacrifices. But his only son, whom he loved, 
the response in Genesis 22 and Hebrews 11 exposes once again the obedience of Abraham. Genesis 22 verse 3 says, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, and he went to the place of which God had told him. He responds to God's word of testing with faith. And Genesis gives the full account of the test. But the book of Hebrews captures the faith involved in Abraham's decision. Abraham offered up Isaac, of whom it was said in verse 18 of chapter 11, Hebrews, in Isaac your seed shall be called. In Isaac your seed shall be called. Abraham's act of obedience is rooted and established in an assurance that God is going to work through the promised seed of Isaac. And when you read verse 19 in the New King James, it says, concluding that God, the idea here is, is calculating, right? Abraham calculated that God was able. He, he calculated that God was able, that's a faith marker, by the way, anytime you know God is able. He was able to raise up Isaac from the dead if necessary. Now, I want you to imagine just for a moment having this degree of faith in God. That even if your son's life is taken, you believe God is able to raise him up from the dead. It really ties in well with Romans 4.21. Being convinced, being fully convinced, being assured... That what God has spoken, he is able to perform. God said, in Isaac, your seed shall go. And God says, go sacrifice Isaac on the altar. And most of us would go like this. Well, God, you just said, you, and you, we'd come up with all these lists of reasons and ra- try to rationalize why it's not a good idea, God. This isn't a very good idea. Remember what you said, God? Instead of just obeying him and realizing that he's a big God and he's going to work out his promises... But he does that as we simply come to him in faith and obey. And that's exactly what Abraham does. The implication from the Genesis account is captured right here in Hebrews is that Abraham passed the test. Even though God stopped him from the literal act of sacrificing his son, from the Lord's perspective, Abraham, what he did... He did as though the sacrifice actually took place. See, you don't pass such a test without faith in God. You don't even begin this test unless you operate with assurance of who God is. God brings tests. Why does he bring tests? What do we know about the word? What's the word say about when God brings tests? One writer says in the scripture that these tests come to reveal the genuineness of our faith. The genuineness of our faith. You don't even begin to, to, as you look at this and you see this, this idea of God bringing the test and how you respond to the test. Listen, how you respond is going to determine the path of your trajectory. I love what Blackaby says here. He says, when you face a crisis of belief, when you face something God's saying, saying to you, just like he says to Abraham here, go, I want you to take your son Isaac and offer him up as a burnt offering. That would be, my friends, a crisis of belief. A moment of crisis where, am I going to do this or am I not going to do this? Blackaby says, this crisis of belief, what, what you do next reveals what you really believe about God. Are you going to obey him? Or are you not going to obey him? Listen, when God administers the test, 
we can always be assured it's for our good. Amen? When he's the one administering the test, we can be assured it's always for our good. And so one of the questions here pertaining to this, am I focused more on the test before me or the one administering the test for my good? Here's trajectory. A confidence in God always boasts greater returns in the long run. If you respond with assurance and have a mindset like Abraham did, God is able. Your trajectory leads to a heavenly city. If you make a habit of responding to God with doubt and worry, that's the other side of assurance. You're not so sure. Oh, and you're not so sure. It's not being so sure about the test. It's you're not so sure about the one who's given the test. If you make a habit of responding to God in that way and you get paralyzed by the overwhelming nature of God's test, your trajectory is leading away from the heavenly city. Remember why in Hebrews, why some of the folks didn't enter in? Do you remember that? If you flip backwards a few pages to chapter 3, read chapter 3, verse 19. So we see that they could not enter in because of what? Unbelief. They didn't believe. They didn't believe that God is who he says he was. Well, the fifth and final example of faith in this passage is found in verses 20 to 22. Join me there. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. When your desired destination is the heavenly city, this will lead to, uh, this is the fifth marker, continuance. Continuance or, or continuity, we could say it that way. Verses 20 to 22 all begin with that familiar refrain, by faith, by faith, by faith. Isaac Jacob and Joseph are all captured here by the Hebrew writer as operating by faith. Genesis 12 through 50 shares the full account of the patriarchs of the faith. Here, though, their lives are described by way of four things. Here's what we can get from 20, 21, and 22. Their lives are being described by way of blessing. Blessing in the context of a father blessing a son or a father blessing grandsons. Worship. Jacob is worshiping. He's worshiping because he's actually taken aback and he's praising God that he actually, with his two eyeballs, gets to see his grandsons. He didn't think he was going to get to see them. Prophecy is the third one. Joseph, he's making mention of the departure of the children of Israel from Egypt back to the promised land. And then instruction. Joseph, upon departure, when when the children of Israel leave, the instruction is given to take his bones back home with the rest of the family. He says, essentially, don't leave me in Egypt. Take me back home. That's the content of 20 to 22. Blessing, worship, prophecy, instruction. But the big picture that's being communicated is continuance. This continuity. Making sure things, certain things, get communicated to the next generation. By faith, Isaac blesses his children. By faith, Jacob blesses his grandsons and worships. By faith, Joseph prophesies and instructs concerning the days to come. Each of these men communicated God's message and made sure the word of God got out before they died. Now tell me, is there any desire to see that your children and grandchildren know the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
Will there be any continuity from your generation to the next? What are you communicating to them right now that will equip them for the days ahead? You remember the painful passage of Scripture. Joshua's generation died off. You remember that? And then in Judges 2, verse 10, we read these painful words. Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work he had done for Israel. Isn't that amazing? One generation removed from Joshua and this generation did not know the Lord, didn't know the work that the Lord had done for his people. No continuity. Just a note here. The essence of this final marker, continuance, has less to do with speaking the words, more to do with living the words you speak. I say that again. The essence of this final marker, this continuance, has less to do with speaking the words and more to do with living the words you speak. In other words, passing along the gospel to your children and grandchildren, listen to this, get this, it will be magnified or diminished based upon whether you are living by faith. Your children can see your trajectory, dads and moms. Especially as they grow older, they're able to see. They're charting your course. They know what your course looks like. They recognize whether your life is in alignment with God and His Word or not. Listen, your life reveals the homeland you seek. Your life. Notice I didn't say the words that you speak. Your life reveals the homeland that you seek. So this fifth marker of faith, which by the way is also a highlight of the whole book of Hebrews, it's a life of continuance. Will you persevere? Will you endure? Will you keep pressing on in the faith all the way to the end? Will your love for God spill over in such a way that those who follow... See it displayed and hear it communicated. See it displayed with their eyes and hear it communicated with their ears. You see, when God calls us to walk by faith, know that he also equips us to pass it along. Matthew 28, go make disciples of all the nations, right? Go. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, commit these. These things you've heard from me, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So a question to think about here is, am I continuing in the faith that others might have an example to follow in the days ahead? Trajectory, thinking trajectory here. Gospel continuity lives a life of faith and intentionally scatters the word for the next generation to hear. So I've shown you five implications of living by faith from the text. Five visible observations that show the trajectory of faith through real men and women here in chapter 11 of Hebrews. We've handled and dealt with the question that if faith is intended to be lived out here on earth and the desired destination is a heavenly city, what kind of life will this lead to in the present? And we've seen that it leads to obedience, inconvenience, dependence, assurance, continuance. Look with me at verses... 13 through 16 as we close. 
These all died in faith. Let's stop right there. I want to put a stamp of continuance right there. These all died in faith. They died in faith. All the way, these, everyone you read about in 11, made it to the finish line in faith. Continuance. These all died in faith. Keep reading. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. There's two of the markers I want to point out here in this verse. And the first one is assurance. Assurance of what God has promised. But I also want you to notice here this willing, willing here, they're willing to be inconvenienced for a time as strangers and pilgrims here on earth. There's an assurance of what God's promised, and there's a willingness to be inconvenienced. To be a stranger, to be a pilgrim here on earth. Keep reading verse 14. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. What we see here, there's no mistaken identity. Those who confess that they're strangers and pilgrims here are dependent upon God for all things and they're living intentionally with a trajectory that leads to a heavenly homeland. They're dependent upon God for everything. They make it plain for all to see. We are depending upon God. Verse 15. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Desiring a better country, a heavenly homeland, requires obedience. These are the five markers we've talked about. When the trajectory of faith leads to the heavenly city, obedience to God is the pattern. Not wavering, not turning back, not abandoning the mission, not quitting when it gets tough, not compromising because it's, it'll be easier to go a different direction. Jesus, in fact, says to those who would follow him, in Luke 9, verse 62, he says, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, Remember that passage? Is fit for the kingdom of heaven. So as you look at your life this morning and the life of this church, I'd like you to go before the Lord in prayer, assessing your life's trajectory at this point. Let's not be fooled. Your life is going a certain direction. It's leading somewhere. It's pointing toward an eternal homeland with Jesus or it's shedding light somewhere here on earth. Remember, the life that you live, the life that you live reveals the homeland that you seek. Hebrews 11 verse 16 says, Now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, I love this, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. The implications of living by faith reach the very throne of God. I want you to know that. 
holding firmly to the end, having a faith trajectory that displays obedience, a willingness to be inconvenienced while you wait for something better to come, dependence, assurance, continuous. This trajectory is pleasing to God, so much so that he's made preparations for his own to be with him. Isn't that incredible? I want you to note what makes the heavenly country a better place to be. It's not solely the place itself, nor is it the fact that the saints of old and your loved ones in the Lord will be there as well. That'll be wonderful and that'll be glorious. But what makes this a better homeland is the fact that God himself will be there and Jesus is the main attraction. We finally get to see him as he is. Revelation 21 gives us a glimpse of this holy city that we desire. Listen to what awaits. I just read two verses in verse 2 and 3 of Revelation 21. Then I, John, the writer, John the Revelator, he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A bride that loved this description. A bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Trajectory is the charted path to a particular destination. The charted path called for here in Hebrews 11 is a life of faith in God through Jesus Christ. The particular destination called for and described in Hebrews 11 leads to a heavenly city built by God. If you were to plot out this day your life's trajectory, would it reflect a life of faith in God through Jesus Christ? If you could visibly see a plotted graph of your life's trajectory, would it be pointing this day, would it be leading this day toward the heavenly city? Now, I realize, before I close, I realize that there may be some here this morning who've heard the word, who realize their trajectory is going, has been going in a different direction right now, away from the holy, heavenly city. And I also realize that perhaps having heard the word, there's some who want and desire to alter their course. Let me tell you, there's good news for you. God is patient and he's allowed you an opportunity to repent, to change course. To repent is essentially to say to God that you are sorry for your sin, that you've committed against him. That you hate that sin, that you're forsaking that sin, knowing that it's displeasing to God. And then it's turning to God in faith. And desiring to bear fruit that's reflective of a life of repentance. No turning back. No going back to Egypt. No compromise. No quitting. No throwing in the towel. No excuses. See that your life declares plainly, unashamedly, that you seek by faith a homeland in heaven. The trajectory of faith, friends, points you toward the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. I look forward to that day. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. 
Thank you, Lord, for putting before us a trajectory of faith and, and what this looks like and how even now in these days that you've given to us, how our days are, are, are to be spent for your glory, for your honor, that we might be with you. Father, we are grateful for the words of truth that you've given to us. I pray that we would be a people characterized by obedience, a people willing to be inconvenienced for a time for your sake, a people that are okay being called pilgrims and strangers here on earth, a people who are dependent upon you for all things, a people who have this assurance about them that you are in control no matter what happens, a people who are concerned about continuance, about making sure the gospel is not only communicated by word of mouth, but it's also lived out in our lives. Father, I pray that we would be concerned each day about moving toward that heavenly city. I pray that we would be about pleasing you and know that in order for us to move in that direction, to have such a trajectory as the one described here in Hebrews 11. Father, it requires of us that we walk by faith and not by sight. May it be so in our lives, and may our lives please you as we walk with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.